In today's episode, we discuss the carnivore diet, why hormesis theory of veggies is wrong, evolutionarily consistent diet, cancer and metabolic disease, real science versus dogma, and how we got nutrition so wrong in America. I really think you're going to enjoy today's episode, and if you do, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice, and also give us a share on social media or tell a friend. It helps us to spread the word. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today's show is brought to you by IcePod, finally an affordable, portable, and effective way to get the benefits of cold water immersion in the comfort of your own home. I opted for the Pro Bundle, which includes the IcePod, a water circulating pump, a special insulated lid, and a thermometer to check the temp of your water. Even in Georgia, the IcePod keeps my water between 60 and 70 degrees, and when I load it up with a 36-pack of water bottles that I use and refreeze after each session, I can easily get it around 50 degrees for the perfect cold water immersion experience. Despite being light and portable, the IcePod is super durable, and it's the perfect solution for anyone who wants to experience the benefits of cold water immersion without spending thousands of dollars for a home water chiller or trying to DIY your own. Cold immersion can help with recovery and muscle soreness, raise dopamine levels, help you wake up and be more alert, help you to burn more calories, mobilize brown fat, and more. Visit podcompany.com and use my special promo code SHANE50107 for $10 off your order, and each sale helps to support the show as well. Stay cool out there, people. Are you looking for the perfect high-protein snack that isn't loaded with stuff like MSG, nitrates, and sugar? Carnivore Snacks is the perfect high-protein snack made from quality grass-fed beef and salt. That's it. Each bag uses one pound of high-quality beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, salt, and nothing else. Aside from being easy, healthy, and convenient, they also taste great. These snacks are not just another jerky. They are way better. Give a bag a try, and I know you'll keep coming back. Check out Carnivore Snacks, spelled with an X, dot com, and enter coupon code SHANE05137 for 15% off your order, and each sale will help support the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast as well. Welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, where ancient and modern wisdom come together to create a better way of living. I'm your host, Shane Sorensen, and each week we speak with successful people from a plethora of disciplines in search of wisdom from their own lives. Your own personal renaissance begins today. Let wisdom be your guide. Hey everybody, welcome to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast. I'm with Today's guest, Dr. Anthony Chafee. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Good to see you. You as well. I'm I'm very excited to pick your brain a little bit. Um, I've been doing kind of like a, a modified carnivore diet uh, myself for a little while. I was vegetarian for like about six months, eight months, and I was actually feeling great in the beginning. And I, I kind of started to get some like residual effects that were going on with my digestive system and things like that. Um, you know, I, I started seeing like the, uh, the carnivore MD, MD and like, uh, liver King popping up everywhere. And I started looking into it a little bit. So, um, you know, I know you have a, a ton of experience and knowledge in that area. So I'm, I'm really excited to pick your brain today. Um, yeah. why, why don't you just start out? Just 
for anybody who doesn't know who you are, or isn't familiar, can you just give us a little bit about your background and um, just introduce yeah. yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my name is Dr. Anthony Chafee. I'm a, an American doctor. I'm currently practicing in Australia. I, you know, specializing in, in neurosurgery, doing my residency here, and I'm uh, I've just always been interested in diet and nutrition, how that affects health and disease. I played uh, rugby at very high levels uh, previously, so I was an All-American in high school and played in the top leagues in America and also at the professional level in uh, the UK and uh, sort of semi-professional level in, in Ireland as well, sort of after, you know, I was I was sort of doing medical school and, and working as a doctor and things like that, so just on the side. And I always wanted to know how to best fuel my body to perform to my, my peak ability. And so I studied nutrition. Uh, well, I took nutrition classes while I was doing my undergraduate <laughs> degree in molecular cellular biology and chemistry, and also just, just studied a lot of these things on my own, you know, took things in from different trainers and coaches and players and things like that. And you just sort of glean as much information as you can. And I found that, you know, you'd have, you'd have sort of, you know, good results and everything like that, but I didn't find, I found that I had the best results that I ever had when I sort of just happened upon a, a, a class I was taking in, in cancer biology uh, at the University of Washington about 23 years ago. And we, we talked about the, the toxic nature of plants and how plants actually defend themselves by using certain defense chemicals, they make about a million different defense chemicals uh, to stop animals and insects from eating them because they're under a constant assault because they can't move, they can't run away, they can't fight back. And so they need to have other sorts of uh, defenses. One of those defenses is just by being chemically poisonous or uh, they have other, other means as well, but that's a major one. And so we were looking at this from a cancer perspective and learning about how just Brussels sprouts had 136 identified carcinogens in it 23 years ago. I'm sure they found more now. And white mushrooms, white cat mushrooms had over 100 known carcinogens. And all the other different produce items that you would ever have come across, they all had dozens. So these are catalog, categorized, named, documented. So it's not it's not conjecture. This is a, this is hard. This is a hard fact. These things do contain these chemicals, and they do cause harm, or can certainly in, in large enough uh, quantities. And uh, and in fact, we we know since the 1980s that the naturally occurring toxins that they use as natural pesticides and insecticides against animals and insects from eating them outweigh the pesticides we spray on them commercially by a factor of 10,000. So 99.99% of the pesticides and insecticides existence in a plant is naturally occurring in the plant. It's not, it hasn't been sprayed on it, uh, at least back in 1989, that things could have changed since then. But the pesticides that they were using then uh, were compared against mushrooms, just normal white cat mushrooms. And they found that the, the mushrooms were 500 times more likely to cause cancer than the, than the commercial pesticides that we were spraying on them at the time they were testing these against, specifically ALAR, A-L-A-R. And, um, and so we were very taken aback by this and just blown away. And I remember thinking in my head, I was like, but, but, but aren't vegetables still good for you though? Because they just, you just get inundated with this, that yeah. vegetables are good, eat your vegetables. And even though I hated them, man, they were just awful and I didn't want to eat them, you know, but they, that's what you're, you're told. And that's why you eat something that tastes gross is because you well, I have to, because it's good for me, which doesn't make sense anyway, because, you know, deer don't go around eating 
the terrible tasting leaves. They eat the things that taste good, you know? And, and, and so we're the only ones that are actually going against our nature and going against our natural instincts and saying, well, that tastes horrible. I guess we'll eat it. Um, which wouldn't make sense in a while. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't evolve to hate the taste of your natural food or you die because you just, you know, before we had, you know, books and teachers and people telling you to, to do something that goes against your nature, all you had to do, all you had was to go with your nature. And so, you know, we were very, very, very taken aback by this. And he just sort of looked at us and he just, just gave us sort of a, a, a funny look. And he just said, yeah, I don't eat salad and I don't eat vegetables and I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And so that really struck home with me. And I just, in my head, I just decided, right, I'm, I'm not eating any plants. I'm just I'm not going to touch these things. And I went to the grocery store and I just went, went through the aisles and just everything was plants or had plants in the ingredients. And, and so I just came across some eggs and meat and I guess, okay, I'll just eat eggs and meat. And my athletic performance just went through the roof. My physical uh, just feeling, how I felt, my energy levels uh, were dramatically increased. My my you know my brain worked a lot better. I was much more clear of thought. Uh, it was like school was was much easier to to do and to balance with my heavy sports schedule because I, I trained generally for around seven hours a day uh, in rugby and then played multiple games on the weekends. And so, you know, it was very heavy schedule, you know, while a full-time university student and I, I was fine. And I, my athletic and, you know, uh, my, my exercise, uh, potential increased dramatically, but also my, my exercise, uh, endurance just went through the roof. So I, I was able to just go so much harder for so much longer. I recovered so much quicker. And so my acceleration just went way past everybody else that I was, that I was playing with and against. And so that was, that was a huge, huge advantage to me. I sort of slipped off of it when I was, when I was over in England playing there and, um, you know, some of the meat was breaded or, or had a bit of, of crumbs and things like that on it. And I remember thinking, I was like, well, is it that big of a deal? You know, Joe makes the poison. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not really doing that much to me. And I convinced myself that it wasn't that big of a deal, but looking back, I remember th at the time I was like, you know, why don't I feel as just superhuman amazing as I normally do. And that was when that, that switch, that sort of came off of that. The most important thing it did was it, it's got me out of that mindset of just, I'm not eating anything with a plant in it. And so other things started slipping in and slipping in. And that's when I, I just slowly got back into a more traditional diet, but it always whole foods, always centered on meat, but now I'm including vegetables and, and some carbs and things like that. Whereas normally I would never do that. Sure. And, um, it wasn't until about sort of five, six years ago that I came across Dr. Sean Baker on Joe Rogan's podcast, where he was talking about how you, Hey, you can only get, you, you can get all the nutrients you need for meat. And at first you're like, Oh, well, that's weird. But then, you know, a voice in the back of my head said, well, actually, you know, I sort of did that for five years, only ate meat because that was what I defaulted into. I'm not eating plants. What else is there to eat meat? And so I remember thinking like, and, and that was, that was a period of my life. That I have never felt better. I've never been more athletic. I've never been uh, just physically as dominant uh, as I was then. And so I was like, all right, well, maybe I'll, I'll check it out and see what I think. And 
you know, within five minutes, I could tell that this guy was, was bang on because there had been a lot of research that came out after that, um, after my, you know, uh, initial just avoidance of plants that, that really showed a different story about how cholesterol and, and saturated fat do not contribute to heart disease. In fact, they're protective uh, in a lot of cases and how fructose sugars are actually probably a major driver and cause of these diseases like heart disease and diabetes. And, and um, you know, so I, I got really interested in that and I sort of just said, right, I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me, get rid of these stupid things. And I just went, went back to only eating meat and eating a lot more meat. And I had a dramatic difference in my health and my, and my you know, physical stature. So I, at that point I was, I just got back from doing humanitarian work in Bangladesh and in the refugee camps there with the Rohingya refugees. There was like a genocide in Burma in 2017 and a million people fled into Bangladesh. And so I was over there helping them uh, with that for a couple of months. And so I was out, completely out of shape and, you know, you, you just eat whatever the hell you can eat when you're out in a refugee camp. And, right. um, so it wasn't, you know, wasn't really at my best and I was trying to slim down. I was trying to get back in shape so I could play rugby again. And uh, this is at 38 and I just wasn't feeling great. And then I dropped the greens. So all I was eating was greens and lean meat because I was trying to eat very, very clean. And. So when I dropped the greens and started eating a lot more very fatty meat, not lean meat, then my, my health just completely changed. I dropped 23 pounds in 10 days and then I stayed about the same weight, but I just started stacking on muscle and shredding fat. I just completely changed physically and I felt amazing. So even when I, before I had lost all the weight and put on more muscle, I, I just felt physically amazing. And so I was able to go back to rugby just, you know, two weeks after that, um, after I started a carnivore diet, just felt, felt amazing. Was able to, you know, just to, to run and compete at, uh, at the same level as everyone else who'd been, you know, training that whole time I was gone. So it's something that, that I knew personally, you know, really, really had a huge impact on my health and, and my, my athletics. And so it's something I just said, okay, what do we know? What can we prove? And I just started digging through the literature and I just, I spent months just, just reading. I, you know, I was taking some time off from work at the time to help my folks with the health issues, with some health issues. And so I had a bit more time on my hands. So I, I was spending, you know, several hours a day, if not, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, just reading studies and studies and studies and studies, just saying, okay, what, what can we show here and what do we need to show? And I've come to the conclusion that humans are biologically carnivores. It's just the kind of animal that we are. And that it's not only better to eat more fatty meat, which it is, but that it's important not to eat plants and mushrooms and things like that, because those, they actually cause physical harm, physical and chemical stress on your body that can precipitate diseases. And, and a lot of the chronic diseases that we're treating nowadays, I think are a direct result of eating an inappropriate diet for our species. And this is something you see across all animal species. If they, you know, you ask any zookeeper, if, the, if you feed an animal something that doesn't eat in the wild, something it didn't evolve on, it gets very sick. But the funny thing is, is they get the same things that we get and they call them human diseases. They get, well, they get human diseases if you feed them something they don't, they don't eat. Right, they get obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune diseases, and uh, that's abnormal. 
you know, animals in the wild don't get these things, don't get cancer. And if you feed an animal something it's supposed to eat in the zoo, it doesn't get cancer. And same with dogs and cats, which are known carnivores. And yet we give them grain and plant-based kibble and they get all these same diseases as well. And vets, vets are saying, well, there's this, this massive uptick in human diseases in the pet population. And they're not catching diabetes from us. These are non-communicable diseases by definition. And so how are they getting human diseases unless they're being exposed to the same things that are causing those diseases in humans? And uh, that would be the food that they're eating. Right. And then all the things you listed, those are those are metabolic diseases, right? So, I mean, they're, mm -hmm. they, they come because there's metabolic dysfunction in someone's body, right? It's not it's not being fed the right fuels. It's not processing, you know, it's not going through the insulin properly. It's not processing the carbohydrate intake properly. And the fat accumulation is, um, is all a byproduct, right? Like when you look at someone with, yeah. um, I guess diabetes, or when you look at someone with heart disease, you, you start to see a lot of the same things, right? Like abdominal fat around the midsection. Um, you start to see, I guess, like elevated triglycerides and things like that, right? They, they all kind of come as a package deal in a, in a way. Yeah, well, they absolutely can. And you know, we look at, at, at MRIs uh, and, and you know, measuring visceral fat, but also intramuscular fat in, in, in the various muscles. That, that's a direct, there's a direct correlation with, with various, with various uh, chronic diseases. And so, you know, a lot of these things, you know, do come down to a metabolic level at the, at the mitochondrial level, you're damaging your mitochondria. They don't run properly. Um, cancer has been shown, you know, as far back as you know, 80, 90 years, uh, to be more of a, of a metabolic issue than a genetic issue. Um, Nobel prize winner, Otto Warburg actually showed this. He, he did, you know, decades of research on, on cancer and the mitochondria. And he wrote a, a, a seminal paper in 1951 called the origins of cancer. And he, and he showed all the evidence for how this is just coming from mitochondria. Uh, you know, they can have, you can have different genetic abnormalities in cancer cells, but they don't all have those same genetic abnormalities, but they all do behave as cancer. And in fact, there are tumors and cancers that actually have no genetic changes whatsoever. So that, that sort of throws a wrench in the gears of its, 100% genetic. Um, the mitochondria in all cancer cells are damaged. They can't go through what's called oxidative phosphorylation, which is a, which is a normal generation of ATP. And so they have to go through substrate level uh, fermentation like in the cytoplasm outside of the mitochondria. The mitochondria do a lot more than just make energy. They actually run your whole cell. And so they go around to different organelles and they turn things on, turn things off, switch on genes, turn off genes. And, um, and they can actually, they're in charge of apoptosis, which is, which is programmed cell death. And so when something's going screwy and they say, okay, well, this cell is breaking down. We just need to shut it down and just end the cell. Uh, you know, that is actioned by the mitochondria. And so that's one of the, one of the hallmarks of cancer is that these cancer cells can't turn themselves off. They can't just kill themselves because they're acting funny. And that's because of the, they have damaged mitochondria. It's also mitochondria that regulate cell division and growth. And so uh, another uh, definitional uh, hallmark of cancer is unregulated cell growth and division, right? I mean, that, that is cancer. It's just, just growing, growing, growing out of control. That's also due to dysfunctional mitochondria because 
it's the mitochondria. If you have healthy mitochondria, they, they can, they can stop and limit growth and division. Whereas if they're damaged, then it just, it just goes, they don't have a stop mechanism. And so you get this, uh, so it's not, you don't have the regulators there. So it gets unregulated and just goes and goes and goes. So those are, those are hallmarks, but also if you, there have been studies that show that if you take the, the nucleus out of a cancer cell, so you get all the DNA, all those genetic changes, and you put those into, uh, you know, in, and if you get one with genetic changes, they don't all have genetic changes, but if you get the ones that do, you take that, the, that nucleus out and you put it into a normal cell with normal mitochondria, it doesn't behave as cancer and you can actually clone it and like, you know, get frogs and mice and things like that from this. Whereas if you take the mitochondria out of a cancer cell and put those into a normal cell with normal DNA and, and a nucleus, uh, it does behave as cancer and you, you try to clone it, it just dies and, uh, and, and you can't, you can't make anything of it. It just, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, not healthy. And if you take healthy mitochondria and put them in a cancer cell, it suppresses the tumor. It suppresses the cancer. So that, that's a pretty good, uh, you know, decent chunk of evidence to say that, okay, this is a mitochondrial disease, uh, primarily. And, um, but there's so many other things. I mean, we're, we're coming across, uh, data and clinical trials and, um, uh, and more, you know, and more evidence showing that things like even schizophrenia and depression, they come down to the level of the mitochondria. And when you fix people's metabolism and you fix their, uh, mitochondrial health, which you can do by a number of different means, but a, a major component of that is diet that you can actually reverse schizophrenia and major depression and OCD and bipolar disorder. There's a professor at Harvard, uh, he's a psych, uh, professor of psychiatry at Harvard, uh, named Dr. Chris Palmer, who just wrote a book called brain energy. And he's doing this. He's, he's been reversing people's schizophrenia and getting them off medication for years now. And he has, and he has large clinical trials going. And there's another doctor, Dr. Georgia Ede, uh, is also a psychiatrist who, um, just published a, a very interesting, she published a number of things. But again, clinical trials using uh, different metabolic interventions to get people better from psychiatric disorders. One of the main ways is a ketogenic diet, which a carnivore diet is, if you do it right. Um, and the reason being is that when you're in ketosis or on a ketogenic diet, you know, people know this from fasting, you turn on different genes, you turn on different mechanisms and, and get different stem cells and you uh, trigger autophagy, uh, which is like, you know, just these cells that aren't really working properly. They're able to actually just shut themselves down and turn off or the different organelles and different constituent parts in those cells can recycle and then get new ones. And they can do this with mitochondria as well. And so they re recycle the old damaged mitochondria. Uh, just, just dropping your insulin allows you to do this and having high insulin, it suppresses this. And so you know, you're, you're going to recycle these mitochondria and then you're going to replace them with new ones, better ones, better working ones, and you increase the number of them. So there are a number of studies that show that after about three months or so on a ketogenic diet, you increase the number of mitochondria that you have in your cells by a factor of four, and they're more effective by a factor of four. So they, this is a dramatic increase in the functionality of your cell. And you know, this affects your brain and everything else. And so they find that these people who are having these psychiatric disorders, that a lot of them, like 
like as much as a third of them can be completely cured just with these dietary changes and another third have a significant improvement. And then, you know, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but that's huge because the pharmacological interventions, medications only work in about 10% of people, you know? And so we're finding like Georgia Ede found, uh, in one study she published, it was, uh, you know, it was like, uh, 32 patients with intractable psychiatric issues, so major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, OCD, and they were institutionalized, right? So they, these people could not live independently. They had to be in a hospital setting, a psychiatric hospital, and they had all failed traditional medical treatments, all the different pharmacological treatments and counseling, everything like that did not work for them. And to the point that they were institutionalized, they were put on a ketogenic diet, every single one improved. Right. So that, that's, that's amazing. And that's an amazing thing you can do for someone. You can literally give them back their mind and their humanity and their, and, and, uh, and, and give them back their independence. So this is a very powerful tool. And, and a lot of these, and a lot of these diseases do seem to come down directly to damaged metabolism, which a ketogenic diet, a, a carnivore diet significantly help. And I think just plainly it's because that's, our normal diet. That's our natural diet. And when you're eating your natural diet, your body's going to work better. You know, there's no, there's absolutely no reason to assume that what we evolved on, what we're biologically adapted to eat and thrive on for millions of years is, is, is somehow suboptimal. You know, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, there's like, there's no examples of that in the wild. You know, like a lion's eating gazelle, but actually if they, if they only knew about cilantro, like then they'd get healthy, you know, that, that makes no sense. And, uh, and there's no evidence for it. So, you know, what we, what we should do is look at nature and look at ourselves and realize that this is our naturally evolved diet. This is our biologically appropriate diet. This is how all of our physiology, anatomy, and biology are geared up to work with. And so just go with that and just go with the flow. Don't don't fight the river, just let it take you. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense too. Like when you, when you really think about the carnivore diet intuitively, like if you just take all of your programming out and you just kind of ask yourself, right? Like you're, you're out in nature, you know, you, you, you haven't eaten anything for, for six days and you know, you're starving mm -hmm. and you, you just, you happen to like come up to like a buffet table and like, there's, one table and it's got like salads and like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're going to crave some bread and things like that. Cause your body just wants some like carbohydrates. But generally the thing that people would probably want to go towards is like, is the protein is the fat is the meat. Like, um, it, it just intuitively, that's what you would typically go for when someone's lost in the woods. Like they, they try to figure out how to hunt an animal, right? They're not, they're not trying to figure out like slowly which like which leaves they can eat that aren't going to poison them as mm -hmm. much as the other leaves. Um, yeah. Well, oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, I was I was going to kind of dive into like, you know, with with vegetables. Right. I know some of the things that I hear about vegetables, like why people say like it's so vital. Right. One one that I hear is like the, the hormesis idea that by kind of slowly mm -hmm you know, like triggering your immune system over time, it gets stronger, your body gets stronger. And then, you know, of course I've heard like vegetables, they're, they're really good at combating like free radicals and oxidation. And that's why you need to have them. Um, you know, what, what do you, you know, like what, what research is there? Or like, what, why do you think that those aren't maybe valid arguments for, 
the inclusion of vegetables in your diet? Well, I mean, first and foremost, with the hormesis argument, uh, it's not about evidence against hormesis. There is no evidence for hormesis at all. They're not, not, none of these guys are presenting any evidence. So they're just saying, oh, I bet you it's hormetic. And I was like, okay, well, what is your evidence for that? You know, because we, we actually do have evidence that these things are toxic. And so, yeah, sure, you know, some, some toxic things at a low enough dose in a specific circumstance may confer a hormetic benefit. But past that range, it just causes harm. There isn't a hormetic benefit. And so, and again, there's about a million different chemicals that plants make. And so which ones are hormetic? Because not everything is hormetic. Not every toxin is hormetic at any level. What exactly is hormesis? Like, like I've heard it a lot. I know a little bit, I have a basic understanding, but like explain it to a two-year-old, you know, what, what is the, the theory of hormesis? It's, it's the idea that you can, it's almost like, um, homeopathy where you, you're sort of introducing some very, very low dose of something and that's causing a stress in a way and your body responds and becomes stronger as a result of it. Okay. Um, but you know, I mean, if you think of it, you know, and, and when people are trying to fool you into this way of thinking without providing any evidence, maybe they'll say, well, you know, exercise is, is, uh, as an example of this, you're putting your body through stress. And you're raising inflammation, you're raising your blood pressure, you're raising your heart rate, and all these things sound scary, but over time you you get a benefit. Uh, well, first of all, you can overexercise and you can hurt yourself. You know, you do have to you actually have to recover from that exercise because you're recovering from that stress, you're recovering from that damage. If you don't let yourself recover from the damage, you're not going to recover, and you're actually going to hurt yourself. Um, but that's that's that is a, an example of hormesis, but that's not a good analogy towards for what's happening with plant toxins. A better, a better example of this so-called hormetic effect with toxins is, is co- called tolerance, right? So you drink alcohol, this damages your body and your body says, well, that's poison. We don't want that in our body. So you start building up a tolerance and a defense towards it so that if you encounter that stress again, you'll be better protected against it. And so as you go, you know, you have to drink more and more and more and more and more to get the same result because your body's building up a tolerance and it's trying to fight this stuff. So that's not giving you a benefit overall. That's not making you healthy overall. That's only making you a bit more robust and, and give your defenses a bit more strength to alcohol. But overall, you're getting weaker. Overall, you're getting damaged. And I don't think anybody's going to argue that, you know, long-term alcoholism is, is not a benefit. It's not benefiting you. It's not getting you anywhere. And so, you know, that, that's the idea. And so the, and the problem is, the problem that I have with that argument is, is that they are not providing any examples. They're not saying these chemicals are hermetic at this level. You know, this is how much oxalates are in uh, spinach. And if you have three leaves of spinach, you know, grown in this, in this grass, at, at this ground, in this amount, in these conditions, picked at this time, in this way, fresh, not dried, and all these sorts of things. So all these things matter. All these things change the, the, the you know, concentration of different chemicals in, in the plant. Then that is a hormetic level. Okay, okay. Well, then what's the hormetic benefit? Is it giving you an overall hormetic benefit or is it just making you, giving you a bit of a defense and a tolerance towards something. They don't say that. They don't go through any, they don't go through a single example 
And there are 1 million of these things. So they would have to go through individually and say, here are all the defense chemicals. Here are all this, the phytic acid, you know, the tannins, the lectins. I mean, I mean these thousands and thousands of different kinds of lectins. Ricin is a lectin, right? And that, yeah, that occurs in beans and uh, in ricin. And uh, ricin is in uh, the plants of ricinus, which is uh, castor, castor beans. We get castor oil out of these things. That is the most poisonous thing that we know of on earth. Okay. It's created by a plant, not even humans. It is the most deadly thing that we know of. One microgram per kilogram of body weight will kill you or any other animal that eats it. Maybe there's something that's adapted to eating this stuff, but almost everything will be killed by this thing. So that, I mean, I mean, I mean, what amount of ricin is going to be hormetic and, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to be even in one castor bean that, I mean, that's enough to kill you, kill anybody. So, I mean, I don't, you're not, you have to, or you have to show that in the dosages that we're getting them in these plants, that that is a, is a, is a hormetic level. Now also, you know, there are thousands, hundreds or thousands of, of different defense chemicals that plants, any individual plant will make. Are all of them hormetic? Again, not everything is hormetic, but you know, all the ones in spinach are all of those hormetic. Are they hormetic at the same level, right? So if you get a hormetic dosage of whatever oxalates, are you getting a hormetic dosage of all the different lectins that you have as well? The tannins and the phytic acid, are they all hormetic at that exact same level? Solanine is another toxin uh, that, that uh, nightshades use. And, and people still die from nightshades uh, if, they, if they don't know what they're eating. I mean, this is, this, is, this is simple, right? You go out, you get lost in the woods, you, you run out of food. You can't just eat any random plant, right? Most plants will make you very sick or even kill you. That's because most plants on earth are inedible. We call this inedible plants and edible plants. Um, so we, we understand that most plants are, are deadly. they have these toxins. They're not hormetic, but then we think, well, the ones that are edible, well, th those are safe. Well, no, actually they still have toxins. It's just that we have a better ability and capability of detoxifying them and surviving, uh, for the edible ones versus the non-edible ones. But that doesn't mean that they're just 100% safe. And so, you know, the, so they're, so they're not providing any evidence for that. And they're saying that, well, there's this, this hormetic effect. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really just a, um, you know, it's a cop out really, you know, it's for a long time, they didn't want to admit that there were these toxins and defense chemicals and plants. Like, oh my God, that's crazy. I mean, I have so many people have been like, oh, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? And it's just like, this is, this is a hard fact. You know, I mean, these things are cataloged, categorized, named and quantified. And uh, you can just look it up in any botany book, any book on horticulture. And, you know, you can just think about it. You know, you get lost in the woods. What are you, what are you eating? You're not eating plants because those, those will kill you. Survivalists and, and special forces guys are taught when you're, when you're all lost in the woods and you're living off the land, never eat anything that doesn't move. That's, the, that's a rule that people have. And that means it's an animal that's moving and that's alive, right? So you're not eating carrion and you're not eating any plant and, uh, and spiders don't eat spiders. Apparently that's probably yeah. a good idea too. And so, you know, I mean, think about it this way, you know, we, we use the, we use different plants medicinally and we take things from them, but these are, these are toxins. Um, you know, foxglove makes digitalis and we use that 
as a, as a way of, of strengthening the contractility of the heart in people that have heart failure. And, th and this can help them and this can help improve their symptoms and make them feel better. Um, but, and it can save people's lives in some, in some cases, but, but you're giving this in micrograms, right? The dosage of this is like, you know, 50, a couple hundred micrograms of, uh, of, uh, digitalis. So the plant is not making that to help people with heart, heart failure. That, that, that plant was making that millions of years before humans even existed. And I'm sure that they, they were doing that to defend themselves. They were trying to kill animals that are eating it. Like you eat me, I'm going to drop you of a heart attack because that's the thing you get that dose wrong on digitalis. Then, you know, if it's too little, then it doesn't really do anything. If it's too much, like by 50 micrograms, it can, it can stop your heart. And that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to kill you. It's designed to stop your heart and, and kill an animal that's, that's trying to eat it because you know, you're eating it. It's going to kill you. That's the, that's the deal with these things. So, you know, you have to be extraordinarily careful with these sorts of things because they can actually be deadly. And so just saying, well, I bet you they're hormetic is, I mean, that it doesn't, first of all, it, I mean, who says who, you know, I mean, this is, this is just a pure conjecture. And until you go through and you categorically go through this one is hormetic at this level. This one's hormetic at this level. This one's hormetic at this level and this level and this level and this level. And this is where you find, this is how many leaves of this plant will have that hormetic level and all these sorts of things. You're just playing games. You're just trying to distract. You know, first they were saying, there's no such thing as these plant toxins. Then there's just like, and then they just did like a five minute Google search and went like, oh, okay. Okay. Yes, there are. However, I, you know, they're, they're hormetic. I mean, two seconds ago, you said they didn't exist. Okay. So now you're saying that the hormetic, what evidence do you have? So they have no evidence of this, but we have tons of evidence that people get harmed by these things. We have tons of evidence. The WHO, who, who you know, pushes a plant-based diet, but you know, I mean, thousands of people that work for the WHO and different people write different articles, but there's, there's a, a webpage from the WHO world health organization that talks about all the different natural defense chemicals and poisons that ex other existence in the plants that we eat, not the inedible plants, the edible plants supposedly that we eat. And a lot of these things have to be detoxified. They have to cook them. You have to soak beans and kidney beans in, in water for a period of hours. And then you have to boil them for a certain period of time. That's, that's to, to try to detoxify some of these things and reduce the amount of lectins. It doesn't get rid of them altogether, it just significantly reduces them so that they're, they're, they're edible that you won't, really won't die off them. But even on the WHO website, they say about how like as little as five kidney beans, which is like a normal thing for people to eat undercooked can put you in the hospital. Right? So is that, is that a hormetic hospitalization? You don't know. No. I mean, that, that is, that is causing serious harm and, and threatening your life. Um, there are different things like cassava roots that have so much cyanide that if you don't treat these things properly, it can kill you from the amount of cyanide. But when you treat it, you're still getting low-grade cyanide poisoning. And so you can get long-term, you can get thyroid dysfunction and neurological impairment from eating this stuff. And cassava is, is the n number one uh, calorie source for 500 million people in the tropics, right? So that is not a small issue. You know, if you don't prepare these things properly, you can get in trouble and people do get in trouble. And there's so many other ones. I mean, they, they, 
they just go through all the different categories of different toxins, like the lectins, peranocumarins, cyanogenic glycosides, uh, all the all the mushroom toxins and, and mycotoxins, things like that. All of these things you have to contend with. There are literally hundreds of thousands to a million or more of these defense chemicals. And until you start talking specifics, until you start saying exact dosages, exact amount of leaves, exact amount, and 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 which ones, like, you know, this, that has a hundred different toxins in it, are they all hormetic at the exact same level or even hormetic at all? I mean, is it one leaf enough? Is it too much, right? Half a leaf of, of hemlock will kill you. Right. And so, you know, people have, have the hemlock in their, in their garden. They have to be careful. They, they can't like, just like pick up the leaves and things like that and, and, and uh, throw them out. They have to wear gloves or else the stuff can leach into your, into your body and uh, you can get very sick. So that's, that, I mean, that for me is a non-starter because they, they yeah. have not provided any evidence that of any hormetic benefit. It's pure conjecture. And they're just saying, yeah, I bet you there's hormesis. And it just shuts people, people down, you know, because they think like, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know, but it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't stand to any scrutiny whatsoever. The idea of antioxidants is, uh, is, you know, one that's been bandied around for decades now, but really this is a marketing ploy. They say like, oh, look, there's these antioxidants in acai berry, it's a superfood. You know, anything's just anything, you know, that, that they sort of deemed a superfood based on one chemical, you know, you, you have to think this is, this is probably just a marketing scheme. And uh, yes, these things have antioxidants, but you know what they have a lot more of is oxidants. So they have things that cause oxidative stress. Right. And so I have a couple of antioxidants. Okay, great. But that's cherry picking. You're, you're looking for the thing that you want and you're ignoring all the rest of, of the evidence. So the rest of the plant, the rest of the berry has a lot of things that you actually don't want that can cause oxidative stress on top of everything else. So the amount of antioxidants you're getting is far outweighed by the amount of oxidants and just, just straight up toxins that are in these things. And also, you know, you just don't have a normal, you, you can't even get a basic complement of nutrients from plants. You, you have to eat meat or you have to take supplements or you will be nutrient deficient and you can get very, very sick. And a lot of these nutrients are, aren't even accessible to us. They're, they're not bioavailable. They're bound up in ways that we can't access because we don't have physiology to, to break it down because we don't, we're not designed to eat these things. That's clear evidence that we're not designed to eat these things, that we don't have the natural machinery to detoxify them and then extract all the nutrients. Cow can extract all the nutrients from the specific grasses they eat. They can detoxify the specific grasses that they eat, but they can't eat all grasses. Some grasses will actually kill them or make them sick. This is why you can, you can put cows and sheep on the same piece of pasture land because they eat different grasses. And so they're not competing for resources. And so even a cow that only eats grass its whole life, if it eats a plant or eats plants its whole life, if it eats a plant that that's outside of that, it will get sick. It can even die. And there are a number of diseases in livestock and animal husbandry that, you know, or like, you know, big head, limp neck, crazy cow syndrome, all these things have names, but, but they are understood to be from, you know, that cow or that sheep eating a specific plant that they weren't designed to eat and they get a specific, you know, it's not a disease. They get a, a, a specific set of symptoms that we know 
are from eating that thing. We need to understand that diabetes and cancer and heart disease and autoimmune issues are that for humans. These are not diseases. This is an exposure relationship. You know, in ancient Rome, they had lead pipes and people were getting low grade lead poisoning. People didn't realize that for a long time. And they're just like, yeah, I guess this is just normal. And then people were like, no, this isn't normal. And they figured it out. They figured out people were getting lead poisoning. Right. So you can have lead poisoning that gives a specific, you can look at it at a, at a molecular level. This causes specific damage and a specific disruption in the cellular uh, metabolism and, and you get neurological dysfunction, organ dysfunction. And, um, and you could call that a disease and you can say, okay, well, let's get a pill that sort of mitigates that and helps you die slowly over 40 years. Or you can recognize this is a toxic exposure and from heavy metal poisoning, and you need to just remove that exposure. That's the first thing you do in, in an exposure relationship is you remove the exposure. You get the person away from that, whatever toxic element is causing the harm. And then you let their body heal. Maybe you have medicines to help get them through that. But the first thing you do is remove the exposure. So we're in our ancient Rome with lead pipes. We are, we are getting sick, we're getting this toxic exposure and we, we have no idea why, but you see all these chronic diseases going up decade after decade after decade. And, um, and that, is not, that is not a mistake, that's not a coincidence. You know, 90% of Americans have at least one metabolic illness. 70% of Americans are either overweight or obese. And the rest of the world is not far behind. In fact, some, some places are, are far worse. So, you know, the idea that, you know, um, that this is going down is simply not true. A lot of these things are going up because, you know, we have better interventions. We have, you know, cardiac stenting. We have, uh, we can, we can detect these things early. We have, you know, uh, you know, putting, putting people on EKG, putting them a stress test and we say, oh, okay, looks like they might have a little blockage and you go and you, you fix that, 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 uh, area of narrowing before it becomes a full blockage and they get a heart attack. So you're preventing heart attacks, which is great, but they still have cardiovascular disease. Right. Yeah. And so and then you have, you know, bypass surgery and all these different sorts of interventions when someone does have a heart attack, does have a stroke, you can, you can increase survival and you can help them get through this, but the disease burden is getting bigger. And in fact, the mortality rate is getting bigger, uh, from the 1960s and seventies anyway. And, um, and so those are just very misleading statistics, but that's, that's par for the course for the people that say, oh, there's hormesis and antioxidants and all these sorts of, because it's, it's the same thing. They're just, they're manipulating data and manipulating people and information to try and push an agenda. Yeah. And you, you know, that, that brings up, uh, something I was, I was literally just talking about this today. I, I saw a clip of, uh, <clears throat> Neil deGrasse Tyson who, you know, I have, I, I love the guy. I think most people love the guy. It's kind of hard not to. Um, but yeah. someone was, was questioning about some of the uh, results that we've seen some from the vaccinations, right? Vaccinations. And there's like an increased risk of like stroke and uh, heart incidents for like younger people, healthy people. And, you know, the guy wasn't basically coming out and saying, okay, like, I think the vaccines were bad. He was just saying, look, like we should look at the data and, Neil deGrasse Tyson, his response to this was that it, it, it is about scientific consensus that he, he just basically made the argument, okay, like the individual scientist and their research does not matter. What matters is the, the consensus that is reached by the vast majority. And when I think about that, it like intuitively, it sounds really, really anti-scientific, right? Because at, at one point the consensus said that the world was flat, 
at one point the consensus said that yeah. uh, the sun revolved around the earth, right? And if everybody had just listened to the consensus and said, well, 95% of scientists agree that this is the case, then we would never have any progress in science. So like, you know, I, I can see how a consensus that was wrong could be reached because we've seen it, you know, time and time throughout history. But I mean, what is it that you think has formed this general consensus that like, you know, uh, for example, like eating, eating canola oil is healthy and eating butter is bad and, uh, you know, eating vegetables is healthy and eating meat is bad. Like how, how did we get it so wrong? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the problem, you know, to err is human. Right. And so we were going to make mistakes and we, uh, that's why, you know, the, even guidelines, people go, you know, guidelines in medicine are, are written by bureaucrats first and foremost, and, you know, they get, they get suggestions from different scientists and doctors and they, they, they submit, you know, hundreds of pages, say, Hey, this is what we think from the, from the scientist perspective, bureaucrats get it and they just do whatever the hell they want. And so, you know, so, um, you know, when people say like, oh, we ought to follow the guidelines, follow the guidelines, it's just like, do you know how the guidelines are made? <laughs> like, it's not necessarily the right thing to do. I mean, if you, the guidelines are there for people that don't know the evidence, you know, but if you're practicing evidence-based medicine, they don't always meet with those specific guidelines because guidelines take a while to change. They can be 10, 15 years behind, you know, the, the current, uh, research. And so that's just, that's just an example of this, that, that we change these guidelines all the time because we get updated information and our, our understanding of things changes and evolves and develops. And so you, you can't say that just because people agree that this is, this is what's going on, you know, that that's necessarily true. I mean, reality isn't, isn't uh, decided by the majority vote. Right. And I mean, there was a majority vote for, you know, slavery, you know, and all in every single country across the, across the world for ever, you know, up until about, you know, 150 years ago. Right. Or, you know, well, less than that in many places. So, you know, that's obviously not, you know, the good thing, you know, consensus does not beget morality and it does not beget reality. And so it, it, it that's quite a, a, an anti-scientific statement. You know, there was a, there's a guy, he's a Nobel prize winner in, in physics. And he was saying that, uh, he actually gave up his seat on the, the American physical society, uh, because, uh, they were saying, they were saying about certain things or like, this is decided. This is, this is like 100% true. Like, this is it. And he was just like, he's like, you guys are still arguing over the weight of a proton. Okay. If you can argue over that, then you can argue over anything. All right. So you can never say this is decided. There's no argument here. We'll broach no, no disagreement that that's ridiculous. That's dogmatic. That's, that's uh, a religious perspective. That's not a scientific perspective. Science is about, is about finding the truth and understanding that you could be very wrong and that there could be more information that comes out to show you. Einstein did this all the time. You know, uh, disciples of his said, like you prove this, he, he, you try to prove something mathematically. And it's like, oh, I proved this mathematically. I'm a brilliant, you know, um, mathematician. But then when he went out and he and he, you know, got data and observed something, if that didn't meet with his, you know, with his mathematical equations, it was just like, okay, I, I was wrong. Something's wrong, you know. Either my math was wrong or I didn't have all the variables, you know. And he'd throw it out. But you know, it, you know, and so, you know, it doesn't matter how brilliant your theory is, and it doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. 
And so you can have all the consensus that you want, but things can still be wrong. And, and you have to be responsible enough <clears throat> to recognize that. So a lot of the consensus in, in human nutrition is, uh, you know, corrupted by, by industry money and various bias powers. So the entire field of dietary and nutritional sciences was actually founded by the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I think 19, 17. Um, not many people know that. I only found that out this year. But if you look at the history, there's, there's a lady, Belinda Fetke, uh, whose husband is uh, Dr. Gary Fetke. He's an orthopedic surgeon here in Australia. And, um, you know, they've done tons and tons and tons of research on on human nutrition, how this affects health and disease. And 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 she's done just brilliant work really uncovering the history of, uh, of uh, nutritional sciences in America. And, you know, she shows that this was started by the Seventh-day Adventists in 19, I think 1917. And the problem with that is that the Seventh-day Adventist church is, is religiously anti-meat. They're religiously vegetarian because in the 1800s, they noticed that people were eating more meat. They were, they were more interested in, in having sex and fornicating, things like that. And they're like, well, that, that begets lust. Therefore, meat is sinful because meat causes lust. I, this, look it up. This is this is actually what they they believe, and so they were just like, okay, we just got to stop eating meat. So we just eat eat plants. And I mean, what does that do? That that suppresses your hormones. It suppresses your health. You know, you're on you're less healthy, and so your body's just saying you're not going to be able to support a life. You're not going to be able. You don't have the resources to procreate. Like you just like you just need to shut it down. That's why your natural instincts to procreate and have sex you know, go away. I mean, it's very difficult to suppress sexual urges in a teenager, you know, but like the vegetarian diet can do it. And I, I think that tells you everything you need to know about a vegetarian diet. And so, but they found that as a, to be a good thing. And so they've been pushing this for a long time. There's Dr. Kellogg's of Kellogg's cereal. He was a Seventh-day Adventist zealot, and he was also a congressman, a very influential scientist and thinker in the early 1900s. And he had a lot of influence on people. And he had a lot of influence on the country. And now his, his company that, that holds his name, Kellogg's, you know, and their, you know, subsidiaries and their owners and everything like that, they have a lot of power as well. But they started this. They started this whole idea of, of nutritional sciences. So from the beginning, this has been corrupted. From the beginning, this has been biased. And you see this now. You see Loma Linda Medical Center, which is a Seventh-day Adventist uh, hospital and medical school. They're the ones putting out a lot of these epidemiological surveys saying that meat's bad and you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. This is flawed data. It's, it's extremely flawed, but it's also extremely biased. And they do things in a biased way. They say, oh, if you eat fast food, you get a Big Mac fries and a, and a, and a full sugar Coke, oh, you eat meat. Like, okay, there's 90 other things in there. Right. And all of them are from plants. And so, but they're blaming, they're blaming them, uh, all the different nonsense that you get with the meat on the meat pizza, uh, you know, can sometimes have meat in the toppings. So they said, all right, well, therefore pizza is meat. And if you eat less pizza, you're eating less meat or you eat more pizza, you're eating more meat. That's, I mean, that you're just playing games at that point. You're intentionally trying to, obfuscate the the data and make things look different the way you want them to and so that that's a big problem so you've had these influences from 
from the get-go in nutritional sciences, specifically with more food science for more uh, different sort of processed foods and arguing that these processed foods that, that literally were designed through an industrial process for industrial purposes. And then people say that, Hey, we can actually get people to eat this crap, you know, um, that, oil, I mean, this stuff right, never for example. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. All the, all the seed oils and things like yeah. that. They, I think there were like, it was 1950s that these things, uh, first came around and like, you know, uh, and certainly in, in human usage and, uh, for, for consumption, they were not, they were not, we we're not designed to eat this stuff. You know, we, you know, this is not something we've ever seen before. I mean, the trans fats, I mean, those, those just really just turn into blockages and damage in your heart right away because they don't, trans fats do not exist in nature. So we don't have any biochemistry that knows how to deal with trans fats. And these are all from the seed oils and cooking seed oils and things like that. And hydrogenating, partially hydrogenating, uh, seed oils, vegetable oils. And so, you know, these are things that, that we've never come across. Right. And so how can we need something that didn't exist even a hundred years ago? That makes absolutely no sense. And so like need it, like you have to have it like as an essential nutrient. Of course, it's not an essential nutrient. Now you can argue that's not that bad for you. Maybe it does give you some benefit, you know, come up with, with medicines and things like that, you know, that, that confer a benefit in certain circumstances, but either way, we didn't, we don't need it. We don't have to have it. Right. And so saying that these are, these are the healthy oils, these are the healthy fats, as opposed to natural fats and uh, that we've always been eating, that those are unhealthy. Those cause disease, even though they've never caused disease before they're causing disease. Now, coincidentally, right when we started replacing animal fats with these seed oils, which had yeah. never existed. And if you look at the increase in heart disease and the, and the rise in, in, uh, seed oil consumption, they perfectly track, right? And also with, with, uh, sugar and, uh, high fructose corn syrup that perfectly tracks as well. And so there's a lot of information and evidence showing that, you know, things like sugar were actually strongly correlated with heart disease, which is a very little known thing, uh, in, in the, you know, until like the mid 20th century, when people started paying more attention to this stuff and they found that, you know, as you, you know, as you ate more sugar, you know, the, in any country heart disease rates started going up. And so the sugar companies in a defensive action ended up paying off three Harvard professors to falsify data and publish fraudulent studies to make it appear as if cholesterol caused heart disease when it's really sugar and to exonerate sugar. And they also paid off other people like Ansel Keys uh, and, and many others. And one of these Harvard professors was named head of the USDA. And he was the one who authored and published the 1977 declaration from the USDA saying that that cholesterol caused heart disease, saturated fat increased cholesterol, stop eating both. So that's not my opinion. That's not something I heard from some guy that was published in the journal of the American medical association in 2016 from the university of California, San Francisco, uh, medical school. Okay. That's a matter of record. That's a hard fact. And unlike the whole, uh, you know, the whole hormesis thing saying that, Oh, I bet you they're hormetic. There's actual evidence of this. Right. And so, you know, we, we even know their contracts. We have the actual internal memos, the internal documents from the sugar company called the sugar association at the time, detailing how they went about this, detailing the people that they pay. We have their names. We have their contracts. We know what they got paid. They got paid $6,500, which is equivalent to about $50,000 now. So they, they got a Kia out of it. That was what the health of the world was worth to them. 
you know, yeah. they got a, a mid-sized sedan and like, and that was just, that was enough for them to just, just completely ruin the health of the world and, um, you know, and, and sell their souls. Ansel Keys was another one of these guys that was bought and paid for by the sugar companies. We have his contracts. We know what he was paid. And so then people, you know, will then say, well, yes, he fudged all that stuff to do with cholesterol and heart disease, but cholesterol and heart disease totally still, you know, cause, you know, cholesterol still totally causes heart disease. Like based on what, based on, on, on what we know to be compromised data, what we know to have been doc doctored and, um, uh, studies where they changed things to fit the picture that they wanted. Ansel Keys did the dissemination study and they said, oh, look, when you eat more cholesterol, have more cholesterol, heart disease rates go up. It's parabolic curve. It's exponential growth, right? And they're like, wow, that's really damning. And um, so, yeah, so, so Ansel Keys did this dissemination study where he looked at, you know, seven different nations. And as they increased the amount of, of, uh, of their, their cholesterol levels, heart disease looked to go up and it had this, you know, this big, big upward trend. The problem is that he had complete data for like 22 different countries and he excluded the countries that didn't fit that, fit that curve. So there were a number of countries that had very high cholesterol levels, but very low heart disease rates. And there were countries that had very low cholesterol levels, but very high heart disease rates. So, you know, there wasn't really, it was just a scatter across the, across the board. And so some people will say, it was like, well, you know, yes, he did that. And yes, he shouldn't have done that, but you know, there's still a, maybe a slight correlation, you know, and, and, and the other stuff he did, well, that, that was all good as gold. And he did other things that, that showed that cholesterol caused heart disease and was implicating it. So, you know, that he's really just a great, a great scientist It's like, no, he's not like, we know he's compromised. We know he was bought and paid for. We know he falsified <coughs> these why would you trust anything else this guy did, especially on the same subject? This guy was bought and paid for by the sugar companies to vilify cholesterol. And he did this for years, right? So why would you think that if he was going to, if he did it with one, we have hard evidence that he did that with some of these things like the seven nations study. Why would you trust anything else that guy did, especially when it comes to that specific subject? It, it, it makes absolutely no sense. So, we have a lot of money and a lot of biased people in positions of, of authority that are, that are pushing this. I mean, even in the WHO, you know, there's like, I think it's 2015, they put out a report saying that processed meat was, you know, like a low grade carcinogen mm -hmm. and, um, and that red meat was a likely cause it carcinogen that has thoroughly been debunked and the university of Washington in Seattle, um, I just, just published a major paper yesterday or last year showing that like the, these were just, these are just junk studies and junk science. And there's just, you know, uh, very, very, they call it lazy science. Those these lazy studies and lazy science. And they showed an extremely weak correlation at best of very, very weak evidence. And in fact, you know, in the totality of the, of the information available, there was absolutely no link or even correlation between um, processed meats and, 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 and cancer and certainly not, you know, unprocessed red meat that, that had absolutely no shred of evidence 
that there was any sort of link. And in fact, a lot of evidence to show that there was no link between uh, red meat and cancer and, and, or even processed meats and cancer. So the WHO saying that in 2015, when you look at the actual story behind it, because you know we do know this as well, they actually purposefully excluded several studies that, that completely countered the narrative that they put out about red meat being potentially a carcinogen and processed meat being a low-grade carcinogen. But what, what's processed meat processed with, right? It's not other meat. It's processed with plants and sugar, right? And mm -hmm. so if you're, if you're taking meat that's not carcinogenic, and all of a sudden you're processing it, it turns carcinogenic. Well, that means that what you added to it is what caused the carcinogenic nature, right? Which are plants and sugar. That's how these things get processed, right? You get a salami, that's processed meat, right? What is added to salami? It's not more meat, it's spices and sugar, right? And so if that's now carcinogenic, it's because of the spices and the sugar, not because of the meat. So either way, they excluded a lot of things that, that really showed that you know, this wasn't the case at all anyway. And, um, there were a lot of dissenters on this panel at the WHO and they were saying, Hey, that's not right. You know, you're excluding all these things. We should include these things. We shouldn't you know this is the wrong conclusion. There's really not great evidence that this is carcinogenic. So we shouldn't be telling people that it is. And, um, and, uh, they were overruled, you know, and, uh, you know, the majority won the consensus won, And so they said, the dissenters said, okay, look, you know, half of you guys are either vegetarians, vegans, or Seventh-day Adventists, you know, or, or all, all, all the above, you know? So, you know, you should, you should declare your biases. You should declare that you're, you're vegans, vegetarians, and, and religiously anti-meat. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that, <laughs> you know, because yeah. like, this is an ideology. They're pushing an ideology. And, you know, if they were doing this honestly, they'd say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I am vegetarian, but like, I look, this is what this study shows. This is what it is. But hey, look, you know, I may be biased because I'm a vegetarian. They were like, absolutely not. We're not going to tell anybody that. And so, you know, um, you know, so it's been subsequently shown ad nauseum to have been garbage. And so unfortunately, we just have a, a lot of, of these, of these influences. And we need to get around it. I mean, just in, in research terms, Coca-Cola, just Coca-Cola, they spend more than 11 times of the money on nutritional research than the NIH. Okay. Just Coca-Cola. And so all these other, you know, food and sugar companies are all putting out, you know, big money, uh, to, to push their product. And the problem with industry, industry research is, a lot of the times the, the, the designs are flawed and they'll do things like calling pizza meat and all that sort of garbage. Um, but the other thing is, is that if they get a, 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 you know, a result that they don't want, that doesn't make their product look good. They just don't, they just don't publish it. They just bury it. Right. Because they own it. They did it. They don't have to publish it. Right. And, um, you know, I think, and then that's, you know, it's a live omission. You know, you, you have, you have evidence to show something we should be adding to the totality of human understanding and knowledge. We shouldn't be trying to bury things that are inconvenient for our, for our product. Oh, there's a good example of that with, with, um, um, Jesus Christ, probiotics, right? So you take these probiotics they are supposed to help your gut health. That's what, what it's claimed anyway. And, and what that's based on was that there was a study with six people that showed 
you know, maybe a bit of an improvement, right? So like, oh, okay, great. This is, this is a proof of concept. We'll get this out there clinically proven to, you know, to help whatever. So, so one of these companies actually hired uh, a gastroenterologist here in Perth where I'm living in Australia and they, and they, you know, did a study with a you know, much larger study saying like, okay, let's get, the, get some more evidence here. They, they wanted to show their product work, which is laudable. That's great. The problem was that it actually didn't work and it didn't, it didn't show benefit. In fact, it showed that it made people worse. And so they're like, okay, they're getting ready to publish the results. And they just got a letter from the lawyers, uh, from this company. It just said, if you publish that, we're going to sue you. And so they were like, they weren't allowed to publish their, the study that they had just finished. And that's how industry re research works. So the abstract is available and you can actually find the abstract talking about how like, yep, this didn't work. It's not good. Um, but the actual study is buried. They can't, you can't get it. But more recently, uh, there was a study actually, you know, there were, were other studies that came out actually showing again that what we knew for years, because the studies had already been done, that probiotics don't work. They actually make things worse. And so that's the problem with industry research, but that is the vast majority of research out there is industry research and industry funded research. And not all of it is, is declared as industry funded research, as we saw with, you know, the sugar companies and Ansel Keys and those Harvard professors, they did not declare that those were industry funded studies. They thought, wow, these are just good old fashioned studies that Harvard's doing. No, they were industry funded. And so you have to declare those sorts of things. And so, you know, the mud, the, the waters are very muddy. And so when you, when you're looking at this, you have a bunch of people, oh, look at this study and look at this study and look at all oh, the canola oil shows this and that. I'm like, oh, great. I'm happy for you. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, you know, and, um, and either way, this thing didn't exist even a hundred years ago. Why would I put that in my body? Why am I putting, why am I thinking that that's an essential nutrient? Why am I thinking that that's an essential fat? Why am I thinking that that's a preferred fat, a preferable fat than the one that I've been designed to consume and to subsist on and that my ancestors have been living on and subsisting on for since time in memoriam, since the, the dawn of man. Um, doesn't make sense. People say, well, people only lived until they were like 35 back then. Complete garbage. They lived much longer than that. Uh, it's that the infant mortality rate was three out of five. You know, if it's three out of five people are dying at age zero, then the other two have to live pretty damn old to even get up to thirty-five. And people are dying in wars and famine. Their the lions are eating them. All sorts of crazy things. And uh, you know, so the people that actually. So that doesn't tell you what people, uh, how old people were when they died of old age, right? right. That was old as hell, and there's a lot of there's a lot of documentation. And even going back to Herodotus, you know, the, the father of, of modern history, he chronicled a, a meeting between between um, an emissary from uh, the Persian Empire and the Ethiopian king, right? And so <clears throat> they were talking there, and the king of Ethiopia asked the the Persian uh, diplomat, "Okay." You know, what does your emperor eat and how long do your people normally live? And they explained growing wheat and making bread. And they said, you know, people would normally live around 70 years, right? About 2,600 years ago. And uh, the, you know, the king of Ethiopia sort of laughed at him and said, well, you know, no wonder you live such short lives if all you eat is dirt. You know, our people just eat meat. We eat boiled meat. We only drink uh, the milk of our cattle. And our people would typically live 120 years, some people much longer, right? That sounds braggadocious, right? But we know as geneticists for 
20 years now that genetically humans are designed to live 120 years on average. Meaning that if you just stay out of your own way and just don't mess up, you should make it to 120 without doing anything special, right? You should just make it there. You know, so doc, Dr. Sinclair from, from Harvard is like trying to get people to live, you know, over a hundred, 120, you can already do it. All you have to do is just stop eating crap and just eat what you're supposed to eat and you'll, you'll get there. And so that's what people were doing, you know, in Ethiopia, the native Americans, you know, they were, they were, you know, they talk about, you know, native Australians, like they, you know, there are many, 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 you know, chronicle, uh, uh, encounters with them talking about how old is this person? How old was that person? Well, this person was born at this time when, <clears throat> you know, when, uh, you know, this war started or whatever. And they're like, dude, that was like 105 years ago. That's nuts. This guy looks like he's 60. You know, that can't be true. Um, you know, the longest lived Native American by their records. And that's a problem. You know, they won't have official birth certificates for these people. And so people say, well, they're, they're just full of it. Uh, dude was 137 years old, right? And so it's like Chief White Wolf um, by John Smith as well, I think. And uh, 137 years old, and you know there are a number of different uh, doctors and people like you know Dr. J. H. Salisbury of the you know, Salisbury Stake. You know he did a 30-year research project into optimal nutrition for human beings, and he lived with the Native Americans and studied how they you know they they were just eating meat and uh, you know honey buffalo, eating a lot of fat and red meat, and these people were living to be 110, 115 years old. And it, as Stone Age nomads with a pack on their back, following the buffalo herds day in and day out, they weren't just you know sitting in a nursing home turning to dust for forty years. You know they were hale and hearty, active adults until they they dropped dead. And that's what you see in the wild. That's what you see in zoos. Is that animals when they're eating what they're supposed to eat, when they're getting the proper resources, they just they they basically go and they they work at this level because they have to hunt, they have to fight, they have to run away, and they have to get away or else they get eaten or else they starve to death. But once they get to a point where they, they've been able to do that, they just sort of go like, yep, that's it. And they just, they just die. And, um, you know, we don't do that. We slowly degrade I mean, quickly degrade for decades and decades and decades. Basically, you know, you hit 25 and everyone goes downhill, you know, you hit 30 and people are like, well, that's it for you. And that's not the case. That is not how it's supposed to be. The natural state for humans is one of health. And yet we're, everyone's sick and we're getting sicker. So obviously that means that something's changing. You know, our genetics didn't change in the last 40 years. Our environment had to have changed. And so, you know, since that 1977 declaration by the USDA, we radically changed the way we ate. Meat became toxic and poison. So we stopped eating meat. We stopped eating red meat and eggs, especially because they had a higher level of saturated fat and cholesterol because they're of course the worst, right? No, actually they're the best. And we increased fruits and vegetables by 30 and 40% respectively, increased grains, increased fructose, high fructose corn syrup, over tripled our consumption since the 1970s. Our seed oil consumption over tripled since the 1970s. And what happened? The obesity rate tripled, heart disease tripled, stroke rate tripled, cancer rates tripled, type two diabetes, autoimmune disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, even autoimmune disorders and, and, and uh, auto, um, neurodevelopmental delays such as autism increased exponentially. They almost didn't exist before, and now they're the only things we treat. Maybe for age adjusted, they were just the same thing, but in real numbers, they barely existed. And so, you know, you can't say that red meat and saturated fat cause heart disease if you reduce red meat and saturated fat and cholesterol and heart disease rates triple. Right. If anything, you can say that that uh, it was protective. And in fact, that's what the studies are now showing 
in the last decade were showing with massive studies with hundreds of thousands of people showing that the higher your LDL cholesterol, the less heart attacks you have, the longer you live, the less likely you are to get Alzheimer's and dementia and other sorts of uh, de uh, degenerative diseases, the less likely you are to go into a nursing home. Um, and uh, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology actually published in 2020 a massive paper looking at all the available evidence and data, meta-analyses, and showed that there is no upper limit on on saturated fat consumption. There's no there's no unsafe amount of saturated fat. You can just keep eating it. They found no connection, no correlation even between saturated fat consumption and heart disease. In fact, they found an inverse correlation between saturated fat consumption and stroke rates. So the more saturated fat people eat, the lower their their stroke rate. The less saturated fat they eat, the higher their stroke rate, right? So that's significant. And that's something that people need to know about and, and not be misled on. And, you know, a lot of these studies that the only studies showing any sort of connection between uh, cholesterol levels and saturated fat are either A, falsified and doctored, but the ones that, but even then they were only correlative studies. They only showed a correlation between higher levels of cholesterol and heart disease, right? You can't prove, you cannot prove causation from correlation. That's a definition of terms. If so, if you have a correlation and a study that only shows correlation, you cannot, doesn't matter how strong the correlation is, you cannot prove causation from that, you cannot. And all of these things are just correlational. But if you show that there's no correlation in study after study with hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, no correlation, that proves there is no causation. You cannot have causation without first having correlation, right? So if there's no correlation, there is no causation. And that's what we're finding with cholesterol. There is no correlation. Therefore, there is no causation. And um, so we just, we need to radically rethink what we're doing as, uh, as doctors and as, as people living our own lives and what we, how we eat and, and what we avoid and why. And I, I'm totally with you. Um, I, I learned some really good stuff from you there. Um, I, I really liked how you, you know, you address the, the hormesis also. Um, that, that's a, your argument against that was a really, uh, really well-worded one that I hadn't heard before, but it, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, the, the scientific method, right, we have to be able to have everything be controlled. So if you're dealing with, you know, Brussels sprouts that have 136 carcinogens in them, how can you, <clears throat> you know, determine a certain level of, of hormesis? And, and also, um, I, I don't need a lot of convincing that, uh, <clears throat> like, the political establishment and uh, the, the people in power uh, are like, I, I'm not very convinced that they have our best interests in mind. I think that a lot of times it's just down to money. Um, and I, yeah. I think that a lot of science has been corrupted that way. And I, you know, I, I definitely agree with a lot of your points there. Uh, there was, there was one specific thing I wanted to ask you about too. Um, so with, with my diet, uh, since I've been doing kind of the more carnivore type diet, essentially what I've gotten into now is I do, um, you know, primarily red meat. I, I try to avoid, uh, you know, chicken pork, but I will do chicken, you know, a couple times a week, uh, fish, maybe once a week or something like that. But the, the bulk of my diet is basically, uh, grass fed red meat, um, pasture raised eggs, 
uh, grass-fed, uh, non-homogenized, low-temperature pasteurized uh, milk. Uh, just try to get the best quality that I can. And then I also do, I do quite a bit of fruit. Um, so I'm doing, you know, blueberries, I'm doing uh, pineapple, papaya, you know, specifically with fruit. Um, is there, is there any benefit there? Is it, you know, it, I haven't heard it be as bad as necessarily the vegetables, but I've, I've heard arguments kind of both ways. What are your thoughts on the, on fruit in general? Well, I mean, fruit, fruit can be certainly used, um, <clears throat> best, I think, for, for like survival, you know, <clears throat> like if you were, to, if you were, be, you know, lost out in the woods and you ran out of food <clears throat> and you came across some berries that you knew about, you know, some black blackberries. I'm like, okay, I've recognized that as blackberries or like an apple or something like that. You know, that, that, that's something that that's good to have in those situations and know about those. Um, I mean, the problem is though, is that even if you think of just, just berries and fruits in general, you know, if you were out and you go, I mean, there's a lot of fruiting trees and there's a lot of berries on bushes and you can't just eat any, anyone that you want. You know, I mean, there are very specific fruits and berries that we eat. So in fact, most berries and fruits are still poisonous and actually still deadly poisonous <clears throat> because the, the plant wants something to eat the, the fruit and then move the seed but not necessarily you and not necessarily a wide variety of animals. You use a lot of these, especially berries, uh, you know, evolved with like birds and other, other sort of smaller animals. Um, a good example of this is the cassowary bird, which is like a tropical bird uh, here in Australia and elsewhere. And it only eats fruit, fruit and berries. And there's about a hundred different tropical fruits that they eat. And um, every single one will kill you. In fact, every single one will basically kill any animal apart from the cassowary bird. And that's because that seed can only germinate in the gut of a cassowary bird. And so if it doesn't, if, it, if it's not a cassowary bird that eats it, that seed does not turn into a plant. And so there is a strong survival benefit and mechanism to stop anything else except the cassowary bird from eating it. And in fact, if the cassowary bird leaves an area, those plants will die out. They will, they will not, uh, you know, they will not have any further generations. So it's very important to the plant to have, have the right animal eat them. So a lot of fruit and, and berries are still toxic. Now, the ones that, that are edible, um, a lot of these things are, are adulterated. A lot of these things have been, I, I mean, they're, they're, we don't eat natural apples. We don't eat natural mangoes, or papayas, all these sorts of things. These, these have been you know, heavily bred to be much more sweet and have, have different, you know, so they're different than they were before. And, um, and so, you know, that, and, and more, more added GMOs or all these sorts of things that like just change it genetically to be different. So this isn't, this isn't something that, so we didn't grow up on mangoes. We didn't, we weren't, we didn't evolve on mangoes. We didn't evolve on these apples. They, they were very different plants back then. None of the fruits and even vegetables that we eat nowadays even existed. 50,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, when the predecessors to Homo sapiens were turning into Homo sapiens, you know? And so it wasn't, it wasn't until very recently they were eating these things at all. So I, I, I think that that's, you know, a good, and also you can just, you don't have to eat fruit, you know, you can just, you can get everything you need from meat. They didn't exist 50,000 years ago anyway. So I think it's, that, that's pretty good argument that, you don't need it necessarily. You can have it. And I think that 
you know, that can provide benefit just from, from pure enjoyment. People enjoy these things. They like having a bit of variety. They like the taste, you know, and then if you're starving or something like that, obviously, you know, fruit is, is going to be a very good option. Um, the other problem is though, well, that basically what I was just going to say is, is that, but it's not necessarily optimal. It's not necessarily the best that you can possibly do for yourself and get the best possible health outcome. Like if you're just eating meat and fruit, like you're doing better than 99.999% of people out there, you're going to be very healthy. You're going to feel great. Um, unless you really eat too much fruit because sugar is sugar, sugar, you know, fructose has been shown to be addictive. It's very addictive. Um, and it can give a dopamine signal to the addiction centers of your brain, just like cocaine, heroin, and meth. And there are actually studies showing that people that are sugar addicted, uh, can actually kill the same areas of their, of their brain. Uh, to people that, that are addicted to meth to the same extent as meth. We have that on MRI studies showing that. And, um, and that fructose is broken down in your liver into the same byproducts as uh, alcohol. So you get the same damage to your liver and body from those breakdown products because they're, they're identical. They're the same products. And so you get liver disease, cirrhosis, diabetes, heart disease. It's even uh, implicated in things like cancer and Alzheimer's. So your, you know, so it's addictive, uh, that sugar is. And so, but the, the fruit that have fructose, <clears throat> we've just noticed that these are much less toxic than, than other, than other plants or other fruits. And so it's thought that, that the reason we recognize fructose is very, very sweet is because we recognize it as something safe. We recognize it's like, okay, this is going to give me energy. It's going to give me a boost. And you know, fruit, when you're, when you're, you know, low on energy. I mean, fructose is actually very high energy. Uh, and it, and it, it, it's like one of the quickest ways to replenish your liver's glycogen, you know? So that's good. You know, if you're, if you're, you know, really struggling out in the wild, like that's, that's actually a good nutrition source. Fat's better. It's much more nutrient dense than, than, uh, sugar, but it sugar's a good option, um, in those, in those circumstances. But, you know, we also understand that it, that it's safe. It doesn't cause something like an acute poisoning reaction that day, the fructose long-term can cause problems and, you know, arguably less than, than in, in it's, it's, uh, you know, isolated form and table sugar, you're adding it to things, you know, it's coming with a lot of other things coming with all, a lot of other vitamins and nutrients. It's coming with fiber and fiber. While that's not actually all that beneficial, one thing that it can do is it can actually stall and reduce the amount of fructose that you absorb. And so you're not actually getting, if you're eating an apple, you're going to get much less fructose absorption than if you squeezed that apple and drank the juice. So there are a lot of little, you know, uh, nuances to this, but even, even then, even with plants or, or, or fruit that have fructose, they, there can actually still be defense chemicals. So they're just much less and they're not things that are going to kill us that day, but all citrus fruit have what are called foranocoumarins, which are defense chemicals and they, and they're, uh, light sensitive. So you have UV light that comes down and, uh, interacts with the foranocoumarins and they bind irreversibly to proteins and DNA and damage them permanently. And this can be seen because you get in your body and it can cause problems, but also even just getting on your skin. You know I mean? Like, you know, you know, uh, people you know, like in the summer, you know, when people are like in junior high and high school, they'll put like lime juice in their hair. They'll go out in the sun. It'll like bleach their hair, right. It'll lighten their hair. Um, 
that's happening in your, that, you know, different sorts of chemical reaction happening in your body it can happen on your skin as well. And there are actual documented cases of people like squeezing limes out in the sun and getting like second degree burns on their hands, just from that interaction with the light. And so, you know, it's not, uh, it's not completely benign, but also this is, this is why you, you have to be very careful with that grapefruit juice and different medications. There are some medications you just cannot take with grapefruit juice. And that's because of these piranacoumarins and your body, your liver is detoxifying them. And, and we, we are better able to detoxify those, those things than others. That's 100% true. Um, but we do have to detoxify them. And so the enzymes in our liver that detoxify these things, especially in grapefruit juice or in grapefruits, um, they're the same enzyme that metabolize different medications. And so if you run out of those enzymes, now you're not going to metabolize your medications properly, meaning that you're either not going to have enough to do what you need, or you're going to get a toxic level. You know, your body's not going to be able to break it down and get rid of it. And so you're going to build up and build up and get, and get a toxic dose. So that's just the, uh, you know, that's just sort of an example of that. But it, yeah, I agree that, that those sorts of fruits, especially sweet fruits are far less toxic than, than other parts of the plant, 100%. Uh, but I do think that, that fructose in general is, is a bit problematic. Most people, like, I'm sure you're probably fine. You probably, you know, have a bit of fruit and sort of, you know, limit that, but a lot of people can't, I mean, even, even, uh, Andrew Huberman, you know, from the Huberman lab, he was talking about, he tried a carnivore diet and, uh, and he's tried incorporating sort of fruit and honey. And he said that, uh, it didn't make him feel better. He didn't get better energy levels, but what he found was that he just started eating more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it. And it, and it dramatically increased his, uh, his sort of, you know, desire and appetite for food and for, you know, fruit and honey. And so that's something that, that I see people get into. Um, not everyone can sort of curtail that impulse. And a lot of people are coming to a carnivore diet because they have, you know, health problems and, and food problems and weight problems, and they were sugar addicts. And then reintroducing those sugars can sometimes sort of re-trigger that. And then they, you know, a little bit of an addictive substance can easily turn into right. a lot more very quickly. And some people, you know, fall off the slopes and they get, they start eating more of it and more of it. And they're adding honey to everything and they're eating fruit all the time. And then they start, you know, going back to eating processed sugars and carbs. And they're six months later, they're back on the couch, eating pizza and, and drinking Coke. And uh, I've had a number of people tell me that they, they've sort of gone down that path and, and they said, okay, I need to, I need to just go back and I just have to do it just meat and water. Um, I have to be very strict with myself because, you know, uh, they, they just, they, they're just the type of people that can't limit that sort of thing. I've never had a problem with that. I, I could have some sweet stuff or some, you know, gummy bears or whatever. And I might have like too much in one sitting, but after that, I'm like, Ugh, I don't, I don't want that stuff. I want to stay the hell away from it. And, uh, but not everyone, not everyone's like that. Also, as far as athletics are concerned, I think you get a big benefit by not eating any carbs at all, because you're, when you're eating carbohydrates, you raise your insulin and your insulin blocks lipolysis, blocks proteolysis, stops your body from mobilizing your energy stores and your fat stores and through gluconeogenesis, making blood sugar, making glycogen, making ketones and fueling your body to a, an unlimited capacity. And this is things like, you know, Professor Tim Noakes in South Africa, who's a, who's a sports medicine doctor, is one of the more renowned sports medicine doctors in the world. He for 30 years said, you have to eat carbs or burn carbs. You have to eat carbs, especially as a high performance athlete. And now he's just like, 
I got it completely wrong. You don't have to do that. And in fact, you don't want to because, you know, when you're not eating carbohydrates, you're tapped into your fat stores. You can always run, you can always make more carbs and glycogen from your fat stores. Whereas when you, you're eating sugar, yeah, you'll get an initial hit and you'll get a, a, a rush uh, and a bump in your blood sugar and glycogen, but you'll, you'll shut down your body's ability to replenish your, your glycogen and your blood sugar. And so eventually you'll run out. And, you know, so, so, you know, if you're just doing like normal sort of training or whatever, you know, you may not see much of a difference, but if you're like, you know, like a distance athlete or high performance athlete, or you're really trying to kill yourself in the gym, then, you know, you'll, you will run into problems and you'll, you'll hit the wall and you have to keep eating fruit or keep eating sugar and things like that to bolster your, your energy levels up. So I think that, you know, if, if people want to do that, that's fine. Be aware that, you know, especially people that had, have had sugar addictions and things like that. Be very careful with that. People with autoimmune issues really do need to be very strict. I mean, a lot of people with autoimmune issues can't even handle like pork, chicken, fish, and eggs, and, and certainly not dairy. Um, and so fruit really, really will set them off as well. So, uh, it just depends on the person. It depends on the situation. Um, and, uh, you know, milk, I think I, I love milk as though they're raw milk. It's delicious. It just tastes like you're just drinking life force. I just, I love it, yeah. but it does have enough lactose that it can raise your insulin and sort of derange your, your metabolism as well. So it's just, it's just something to know about and think about, and then, you know, make the right choice, uh, you know, for the individual. Awesome. Yeah. That, that's great info. I actually, uh, you're, you're inspiring me to maybe just, you know, try to try to cut the fruit out and see anecdotally, you know, how I yeah. feel over a couple, couple week period. Um, yeah. I, I, I think you'll feel better, man. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially after a few weeks, you know, because you know, it can take, it can take some time to get, um, you know, fat adapted is, is what they call it. Mm -hmm. Um, but professor Noakes found that you know, he did studies on uh, keto athletes versus, you know, carb fueled athletes. And they had like, you know, dozens of people and they had one that was like keto adapted and one that was eating carbs. And, and to get keto adapted, they said, okay, you're going to be on a ketogenic diet for at least 42 days. They, they really wanted to make sure um, that they were, that they were burning things optimally, but they found that <laughs> actually everyone was, was very keto adapted within three weeks. Some people were quicker than others, but they basically found that no one was took longer than three weeks. Um, but they interesting about that study was that they just basically, you know, you put the people on the treadmill basically and just be like, okay, you know, go for it. And their, their effort level, everything like that was, was matched like both groups, you know, you know, there wasn't one that was better than the other. And then they switched them. So the people that were eating carbs now went on a keto diet and, and the other guys started eating carbs again. They checked them again in 42 days and they found that, yeah, everyone's still, still bang on. The difference being that, you know, they didn't test this in that study, but the difference being that uh, the keto, the fat adapted guys, while they could put out the same amount of effort as, as the carb fueled guys, they could actually just keep going and keep going and keep going after that because they were generating their carbs all the time. There's a guy I just, uh, just interviewed actually who was featured on the, on the Noakes Foundation uh, website. He's uh, a guy, Sean, uh, uh, Sakovsky, I think it's pronounced. Um, and he's a, he's a, you know, endurance cyclist and he's, he's 50 years old. He's turning 51 in, in a couple months. And, um, and he's doing these massive endurance races 
you know, that are like, you know, six, nine, you know, 12 hours long. And he's just like, well, okay, I just want to, I just want to try to do well and just try to go to a good pace and uh, just see how I do, but I want to do it faster. So he just, he, he does basically carnivore. Um, and, uh, but definitely keto, maybe have some, some vegetables or something like that every now and then, but he's just, he's just meat and fat by, uh, uh, for the most part. And so he didn't eat at all the day of the race. He didn't eat at all during the race and ended up coming in fifth in this like 198 kilometer, you know, ride or something like that. And, um, and one of his races, he was, they, they calculated his output and he had no refeeding. And like all these other people that were doing it, they're like sucking down the, like the sugar gel packets and like, they're just like, oh my God, they're just dying. And he's just like, you guys are not really, you know, and he was just fine. He was just going and he didn't eat the whole day. He didn't refeed. He didn't do anything. Um, he just, he just like ate like, like a stick of butter, like, you know, like for it. Like that was it. That was, that was what he ran on. And, um, and there was another race that he did where his output, his caloric output, uh, they calculated at a thousand kilocalories per hour, which like the tour de France guys are putting out between 900 and 1100 kilocalories per hour. Right. So he's, he's up there at professional pro like tour de France level output. And he maintained that for six hours straight. So he burned 6,000 calories just straight through, just go, 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 go. Didn't eat, didn't refeed. And, um, and he was fine, you know, and, um, you know, and so that just goes to show you that like you are, you are going to have far more of a battery. If you actually run on your fat stores, uh, you do, you cannot store, you know, that much glycogen. You just, you just can't, you're going to run out. And so, you know, but when you're eating, when you're not eating carbs, uh, then you just, re you will constantly replenish your glycogen, your blood sugar. We, we saw that in studies in, in, uh, in wolves, actually in 1981, there was a study looking at that because people were like, you have to eat carbs or burn carbs. And they said like, well, you know, wolves don't carbo load before they chase caribou for 10 hours. So like, what are they doing? Do they have carbs? Do they, do they have blood sugar? Do they have liver glycogen. And I found out, yes, they do. And it's rock solid. Like it does not change. It's, it's steady the whole time because as they're using the glycogen, their body's replenishing the glycogen stores. And so it's just this constant, constant, you know, use and replenishment. Um, and so, you know, that, that can happen with us as well. And so I, you know, as you know, give yourself a bit of a time, you know, give yourself sort of two, three weeks to get acclimatized to it, uh, especially with your workouts. Like for me, I, I just had, I was having better workouts day one. You know, I felt you know much better day one. But some people, like Huberman, were saying that that his his workouts weren't as great in the first couple of weeks, and that, that that really distressed him because he loves working out. That's something that that really brings him a lot of joy. And so he was just like, okay, well, what do I do? And so you know, he sort of incorporated fruit and honey, thinking, okay, well, this is what you know people. You know, he actually spoke to Dr. Saladino and said, you know, I'm thinking of reincorporating carbs you know, what do you think? And he was like, okay, we'll just try the fruit and honey sort of thing. And he found that it actually didn't help his, his energy levels. It didn't help his exercise, but it actually made him like overeat and want to eat a whole bunch of more fruit. So that, that actually was a detriment for him. Um, and, uh, so he didn't go quite long enough. I think I, I you know, there's, there's other things you do too. You need to eat enough. You need to eat enough fat. You don't want to eat within several hours of a workout. You really want to train fasted because if you eat a big meal of fat and meat, then, then you just get lethargic. You know, a lot of blood's going to your digestive tract and it's not in your muscles in your brain. So, you know, that's gotta be, uh, first and foremost. 
and you put yourself in the rest and digest mode, your body's saying like, why are you expending energy? We've already got energy. We, we, we're done for the day. Just shut it down, just rest. And um, so there's a lot of different reasons, but that, that can also be one of them is that it can, for some people it can take sort of two, three weeks before you get fat adapted. So you know, if, I, if, if you were going to try it, I would, I would give yourself at least 30 days and just like, really, you know, see how you go. And, and usually like you might right away feel better, but it might be towards that last week or two that you really start feeling a lot better, especially in your workout. So I just, I just give it a, <laughs> at least that amount of time to give it a fair shot. Got it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm motivated. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to try it out. So, awesome. um, I have a, have a couple of questions I want to run through real quick. Um, I typically ask these, mm -hmm. you know, just all my guests, they're a little bit, you know, kind of more personal on like your, your, just your habits and things like that. Um, the first one I wanted to ask was, uh, if you have any, you know, daily habits that you like to run through, just, you know, a couple habits that are part of your day, help you with your routine. Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get more sort of early morning light and doing like a bit of cold exposure and, and, you know, a lot of, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've always sort of, you know, understood like when I go camping or I go out or whatever, like I'm, I just feel so much better. I'm just you know, going to sleep with the sun coming down and, and waking up when it goes up. And I, that, that always made me feel better. So I, intuitively I was like, okay, maybe there's something to that, but just seeing more and more research come out about that. And, uh, you know, and again, going back to Dr. Huberman, you know, he, he, really uh, lays a very, very strong foundation of evidence for uh, that sort of thing. So the early morning cold exposure and getting out, getting that early morning yeah. light, getting the, your, your body signals, your body is, is so sensitive to the, the world around us that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's very important to get those signals and get them at the right time. And uh, so I'm trying to do that more, you know, before it was just, I don't have time to do anything. So I was, you know, I was up at you know, five in the morning in the hospital at five thirty or six, you know, and, um, and I was there until God knows when, maybe the next day and, uh, and then doing, you know, usually working like six, seven days a week. So that really wasn't possible to have a routine. It was just, I get up, I shower, I get out the door. Um, so my main, my main, the main thing that kept me going was, was really just the diet and just, just eating, you know, big fatty steak, you know, at least once a day. <laughs> And that's what got me through. But now I've, uh, I'm taking a bit of time off and, and doing other things. So I'm not as busy. I'm still sort of maybe just working, you know, a time and a half as opposed to triple time. <laughs> and so um, I have a bit more time. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to get the, the morning exposure, cold exposure, sun exposure, things like that. You know, just get outside, just be outside more, get my feet on the grass, things like that, and just see how it affects me. I, um, you know, it, whether or not it's, it's giving me a bunch of health benefits feels nice. You know, it's nice to just be outside and not be cooped sure. up all day. Um, so that's, that's sort of been my routine and I'm trying to get back into working out. I, it's been a long time since I've had time to even time to go to the gym. And so I want to, I'm trying to get back into a routine of, uh, working out as well. I like to go to the gym four days a week. I like to work out four days a week, at least have that as a baseline and then add workouts from there. And, uh, yeah. And hopefully, I just sort of banged up my knee, so I'm trying to rehab that and maybe even go back and play rugby. That would be fun. Okay. Yeah, great. Great stuff. I, I do a lot of the same things. I've, I've really been getting into the ice baths in the mornings. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm a jiu-jitsu guy. I, I train, I train jiu-jitsu, you know, nice. two to four times a week. And I, I work in a gym during my day job. So I'm, I'm in the gym all the time, too. But, uh, you know, that, that stuff makes a big difference with recovery as well, just keeping you going for mm -hmm. sure. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I was just going to say too, I actually did. I mean, I did, um, I did pancreation and, uh, Muay Thai kickboxing since I was like 14. So like, I've always loved that. And I, I wrestled since I was a kid as well. And, um, that was one thing that I was like sort of thinking about getting back into, but I don't, I don't know if there's any places in Perth that actually do that. Every time I, I went to like such a good place, um, mm-hmm. that I sort of got a bit spoiled. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's uh, AMC kickboxing in, in Kirkland is that my trainer was Matt Hume and, okay. um, yeah. like in the UFC, like, uh, you know, mighty mouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're that guy. So he, he yeah. trains at AMC now. And okay. so he trains with Matt and, um, and I was there since I was like 14. So this is, I mean, this is, I mean, literally 30 years ago, when I, I actually 30 years coming up on 29 years ago that I started there. So it's been a long time since I've done any of that, but, uh, but it was amazing. I, I loved the sport. It was just so much fun. And, uh, but like, since I, I moved away from there and I stopped training at AMC, you know, I go to other gyms and, and I was just like, all right, we'll, we'll try it out. And I was just like, these guys are all doing it wrong. And I was just like, well, I don't want to go there and just like learn bad habits. So I just like, I felt it was like better to not train at all than to like sure. train and pick up bad habits. So, uh, and, but that also meant that I didn't actually continue on with it, which, which kind of sucked. And so I, I'm not happy with that decision really. Yeah. I mean, I, hopefully you can find a spot to get back into it, man. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I know for me, it's, it's been life-changing when I've been doing jujitsu, I'm 33. I've been doing martial arts for I mean, 16 years. I've been doing jujitsu for, you know, 12 years. And it, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's definitely changed me for the better. Definitely changes the way that you just, you yeah. go toward through life and great, great place to de-stress. It's like kind of a meditative thing too. You just, you really have to get out of your head because if you're, if you're in your head while somebody's trying to like kill you, someone's trying to choke you out, it just doesn't go well. Um, kind of forces mm-hmm. you to get into the, just get into the zone a little bit, get into the flow. So, um, yeah, definitely. I, I know you've read obviously a ton of research. What about, uh, like, you know, are, are you a big reader in general? Do you have like a couple book recommendations you you'd put out there for people? Uh, well, I do. Yeah, I do. I do try to read for, for pleasure. Um, right now I'm, I'm going back through like the, the old, like classics, like I'm reading, Same. um, yeah, sort of, sort of some like classic literature, like um, you know, uh, uh, reading like Thucydides and like the old histories of ancient Greece and the Peloponnesian War and things like that. Um, and then um, Sophocles, I've been reading a lot of Sophocles plays recently, and I just, I, just, I, I don't know, I've always I've always had a fascination with ancient Greece and like since I was a kid, I loved like Greek myths and and all the the old heroes and things like that. I, I would read those all the time as a kid, and um, but I think. More recently, I've been, well, in, in the past several years, I think most of the books that I've read for pleasure um, have been like Thomas Sowell, uh, who I think is just the most brilliant person in the world alive right now. And he's just, I honestly think he's probably the most brilliant and well-developed thinker that America's ever produced. And he's a, he's a world-class economist and, uh, and historian and thinker and just, you know, philosopher. And um, I just, the man is just absolutely brilliant. He's written over 50 books. Uh, over 50 books and not including rewrites or, or compilations of essays and things like that. And, uh, and he's still writing the guys like 90, he, I think he published a, a, another book on his 92nd birthday and he's still, he's still producing wow. and, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant man. And, um, and then, uh, also like Victor Davis Hanson, I've been reading a lot of his histories. He's a, the, well, they're both at, at Stanford, they're at the Hoover institution at Stanford. So, so Sowell is a senior fellow in economics at, um, Stanford, 
Hoover Institution. That's like, that's been rated like the top think tank in the world for decades. And uh, Victor Davis Hanson is also there. He's the senior fellow in um, military history and classics. And so he, he's written a lot of really, really interesting books on ancient Greece and Rome and just the histories of civilization in general and, and, and particularly military history. So I've just been, uh, I've, I've just been liking those, but I, I, when I, I do try to read for fun, but I just, I don't have all that much time. So sure. I try to, I try to like, you know, make, make my time count. Gotcha. Um, and the, the last question I'd like to ask is, uh, so <clears throat> let's say you could, uh, go back in time to, you know, a teenage version of yourself, give yourself a piece of advice. Do you, do you have like any piece of advice you'd go back in time and give to yourself, you know, just kind of knowing what you know now? Yeah. Don't eat plants. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I'm, I'm so pissed that I have not been doing this my whole life. I'm so pissed that like I, that I had it, that I had the Holy grail in my house and for five years and then, and then just let it slip away. Like I had, I, that bothers me to this day. And I remember when I got back into, into just eating a, a carnivore diet, uh, you know, when I was 38, and I just felt amazing. I remember after just two weeks back on a carnivore, just dropping the plants, just dropping the, the greens. I wasn't, wasn't eating carbs, wasn't eating sugar, wasn't drinking alcohol. It was just greens and lean meat and not a lot of meat and a lot of greens and just cutting out the greens and eating a lot more fatty meat. In, in two weeks, I just, I felt like I'm just, just a different breed of human. And I remember seeing how I felt and I was, I was overweight and I was not in shape, but I felt amazing. And I remember seeing how I felt and just looking back on the rest of my life and realizing that I felt like crap my whole life. And it really pissed me off. And I was just like, I should, you know, I was robbed my birthright. I was robbed, you know, my development, like all, none of us developed to our genetic potential. You know, before the agricultural revolution, the average brain size was 11% larger than it is now. Our brains are not as big as they would have been. Our brains are not as well-developed as they should have been. And our bodies aren't as bigger. They're, they're not as big. They're not as strong. We don't have the same bone density and muscle mass potential that we would have had. And so, you know, humans, when they're eating like, you know, big mammoths and things like that, then when they're just eating a bunch of fatty meat, they were on average, like six foot two to six foot four on average, you know, the Maasai in Africa, they're like on average six foot two, six foot four. And so the average adult male height in America is five foot eight. Right. And so that's a very big difference. And, um, and so we were robbed from that. And like, I just, I really wish that I just like, you know, I tell people now I tell like, you know, talk to teenagers and, and sometimes people's parents want me to, you know, talk to their kids and help them get on this and convince them. And I just talked to them. Like, I wish to God, someone had this conversation with me and just mm -hmm. said like you, this is, this is massive, massive edge that you can have in sports and just in life by just eating the right way and letting your body work and develop properly. You're going to grow an extra six inches. You're going to be, you know, a hell of a lot smarter, a hell of a lot stronger and a better athlete. I was just like, I, I would have loved to, to get that advice when I was a kid and then stick with it and never come off of it. Got it. Yeah. I mean that, that, that's definitely, uh, definitely on brand with the message. And I, I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so I definitely recommend like anybody, um, I watched your, uh, your, you know, plants are trying to kill you speech, you know, on, mm -hmm. on YouTube. I definitely recommend anybody to check that out. I'm sure that you would probably recommend that's a great way to get introduced to kind of some of 
some of the things we talked about today, you know, on a deeper level, but um, for anybody looking to learn more about you or learn more about the carnivore diet, I mean, do you have some resources or any, you know, I'll put links up and everything in the description too, but um, how, how should somebody, you know, reach out to you to learn more or where can they learn more? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm actual on social media. I have a YouTube channel. It's just Anthony Chafee MD. And uh, that's where I have all my videos and I have playlists set up that people can, can look at like, uh, you know, just my podcast I have a podcast called the plant free MD that, that can be on any, any podcast platform. And on YouTube, there's a playlist with that, with the, those, um, podcast videos as well. And I also have, if people are interested in, because there's a lot of information out there and I even have a lot of videos out there, but I made a playlist called uh, carnivore starter kit. And I think that has, has a collection of videos that I think are probably the more important ones to start with and to really understand like why we're doing this and how to do it. And also, you know, what, what the main arguments are behind that. And, uh, the first, very first video I did was, was really to try to cover most of the arguments. It was called, um, the facts about carnivore and vegan diets. And that was because I'd just done a debate, a live uh, debate online. Uh, with the Australian College of uh, Nutritional and Environmental Med Medicine, ACNAM. And they, uh, and we had a carnivore versus vegan debate. And we had, you know, basically three doctors on each side arguing for animal-based carnivore or plant-based vegan and or vegetarian. And, um, you know, we won that debate and I just sort of put my arguments in one package and sort of put that up. So I think that's probably a good argument there just that has a lot of the, the, salient points. Mm -hmm. Um, and then why we are carnivores with a slide presentation that I did that one. And then the plants are trying to kill you. I think though, that, especially the one that I did, um, as a, at a medical, I presented that at a medical conference. And so it's under the low carb down under, uh, thing, but that's also on the, that's on the, um, on that playlist. And so I think that's a very good place for people to start, especially for that one, the, the facts about the carnivore and vegan diets. I think that probably encompasses most of these arguments pretty well and then get into more detail in those other other videos like the plants are trying to kill you or the why we are carnivores one and and uh and then just instagram i'm, I'm mostly active on like instagram uh and and twitter kind of and my instagram is just anthony chafee md as well twitter is just anthony underscore chafee and then you can find other other silly social media things like TikTok and all that garbage on, you know, through links in there. But uh, those are the main ones. Awesome. Well, Dr. Anthony, I had a, I had a great time speaking with you today. I learned a lot. You, you've inspired me to, to make even some more changes to my diet oh, here. Cool. And uh, I'll definitely yeah. reach out and, you know, let you know how the results have gone, but um, thanks again for coming on. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks, man. You too. Thanks for listening to the Renaissance Wisdom Podcast, and hopefully you learned at least one lesson on today's episode. Our mission here is to uncover practical wisdom to create a better way of living for our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us by leaving the show a review on your podcast platform of choice and by giving it a share on social media. This really helps us to grow our audience and to continue to add more episodes. If you are interested in learning more, please check out our website at renaissance-wisdom.com or check out the book that started it all, Renaissance Wisdom, How to Flourish in the Modern Day, now on Amazon. Thank you again, and may wisdom be your guide.